this morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. And I want to give a type of Thanksgiving sermon here, but not a typical one that you might be thinking. I'm actually not going to give you a message about uh, what you should be thankful for and things of that nature. What I'm going to do this morning is basically do a reverse Thanksgiving kind of message. We have a lot to be thankful for, that's for sure. But what I want to ask this morning is, would an apostle from the New Testament, if they looked at your life and mine, ask yourself this question, would an apostle give thanks for me? So not, I'm not talking this morning what we should be thankful for. We're going to ask it reverse. With how I live my Christian life, would the Apostle Paul, for example, would he look at you and say, I give thanks to God for who you are as a Christian? Would an apostle be thankful for me? Let's ask it this way. Am I the kind of Christian an apostle would give thanks to God for? What kind of a Christian would that be that the Apostle Paul would give thanks to God for? That's what I want to look at this morning from Colossians chapter 1. Paul here, who wrote this, he expresses thanks to God, but he does it when he thinks about the Christians in Colossae. And that's what I want to look at here is pull out these principles and say, but what was it about these Christians that Paul said, whenever I think about you Christians, I give thanks to God. So then again, what would be about them and us that we could say, I, Paul gives thanks to God for me? Why would we care what Paul thinks, though? Well, Paul was an apostle of the Lord. Apostles were specially chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to carry on his mission after he ascended back to heaven. The word apostle is the Greek word apostolos or apostolos. You can hear the word apostle in that. It simply meant a authorized messenger, like a king would send an envoy. A king would send an authorized person to speak on his behalf and even carry out actions on his behalf. That same word is applied to these guys like Paul and Peter and James. Jesus said, I've chosen you to be my special divinely appointed messengers. They were sent out by the Lord Jesus. But specifically about the apostles, what made them unique, they're kind of like prophets from the Old Testament. They spoke God's word, but they had another level to them. The apostles were to sort of form the new church that Jesus was going to build up by his death, burial, and resurrection. The apostles would go and preach the gospel and basically start a church. They were kind of like church planters. They would form a church in this city and appoint elders over that, and they would move on and keep doing it. Here's the big thing about apostles, though, why it answers this question. Why should we care what Paul thinks? Why is he so special? He's just a person. He was a person, but Jesus appointed him to be an apostle, and one of the things the apostles did, Jesus told them that they would write and teach the rest of the truth that Jesus didn't teach on earth. And that means this, they were authorized to write the New Testament. So then, when an apostle speaks in Scripture here, it is just as if God himself is speaking to us. It's God speaking through them to us. So Paul was sort of last, he was late to the party. Jesus chose the original guys. Paul was actually a persecutor of the church. But on the road to Damascus, you can read in Acts chapter 9, Jesus sort of just appeared to him in this blinding light and he called out to Paul and said, Paul, you're persecuting me, meaning the church. And he called Paul to follow him and to be one of his special messengers. Paul says something about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, speaking about himself here, that last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So by Paul's own admission, yes, I'm an apostle. I'm unworthy to be an apostle, but I am what I am by the grace of God. So again, we want to care what Paul thinks this morning and look at this, because really what's going on here is this is God's word to us through Paul. So when I say, would an apostle give thanks for me based on how I live my Christian life? The real way to say that would also be if God looked at me and how I live my Christian life, would God say, I'm really proud of this son or daughter in the Lord. I'm really thankful for how they serve me and what they're doing. So let's think of it in that light. If you would join me in standing, if you can, for the reading of God's word. And we're just going to read Colossians 1 verses 3 through 8. Again, Paul talking here says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Pray with me for a moment, please. Heavenly Father, we now come to the moment to hear your word. And I would ask, Lord, that you would let my thoughts, my words be clear and that they would help everyone here, Lord, in some measure that the Holy Spirit, you would open hearts and minds to hear something that they needed to hear this morning. I pray that you would bless everyone for making the journey to be here today that they would be blessed for having been here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, may be seated. So this is the question I want to address. What kind of a Christian does an apostle like Paul give thanks for? What, what, what about that Christian that we should also adopt and make sure we're having in our own lives that Paul could look at you and I and say, I'm thankful for you, I thank God for you. But look at verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So that's where I'm getting this idea. Paul, writing to the Christians at Colossae, begins this letter with, whenever I think about you Christians at the city of Colossae here in this church, whenever I pray about you, I give thanks to God for you when I think about you. Well, what is it about them that Paul is thankful for? Here's the first reason he's thankful for them. Paul says, the kind of Christian I'm thankful for is the Christian who has an obvious faith. They have an obvious faith evident faith the first trait he mentions here in verse 4 he says again since we have heard so Paul says I've heard about something about you notice what he says he's heard about them your faith since since I've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints it's that first phrase I want to look at so the first reason Paul says Christians at Colossae I thank God for you why because I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the big deal about that? Shouldn't every Christian have faith in Christ? Of course. But here's the thing about these Christians that he's thankful for. Paul is not in this city. In fact, by the time of this writing, of this letter, Paul had never met these Christians. He'd never met them. He'd never been there. So, that means their faith was lived out so publicly, so boldly, so obvious that wherever Paul was at when he wrote this, word had gotten back to him. And remember, they didn't have cell phones. 
computers, electricity. Word got around through written letters sent out on, on foot, maybe on a donkey. Or it was just as people traveled about, they spread the good news. They shared the word of what was going on at Colossae. Word had gotten out back to Paul to the degree that he could say, I need to write to these Christians whom I've never met and explain to them how thankful I am for them because I've heard about their faith, their strong, evident faith. These Christians had such an obvious faith. It was evident to everyone else. It was so pervasive and obvious that Paul had gotten word as well from wherever he was. Interestingly enough, Paul said the same thing in the letter to the Romans. I'll read that to you real quick. In Romans 1.8, so writing to the church at Rome then, he said this about them. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, meaning the Christians at Rome, but notice why. Because, so because is your, because word. Like here's why he's saying that. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So to the Colossians, he says, when I think about you, I thank my God in my prayers because I've heard of your faith. To the Romans, he could also say, I thank my God in my prayers about you because your faith, the news of that is going everywhere. Paul has heard about it. Paul says in both Romans and Colossians that their faith is so public, so obvious. When he thinks about it, he just thanks God for it. Well, what is their faith in? He says their faith is in Jesus Christ. They had their faith in Jesus, which means their faith was real and genuine. That faith was so real and genuine, it was heard all over to the point Paul heard it. The Colossians then must have lived their faith out so publicly in front of everyone, family, friends, co-workers, that it was just so obvious and so evident they were not hiding their faith. And news of that was traveling outside of their even their home city. The question would be for each of us then. I can say I have faith in Jesus, but really the question is, but how do I live out that faith before others? Is my faith in the right spot? Meaning, is it in the right thing? Well, the thing is not really a thing, it's a person. My faith has to be in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says he was thankful for them for. And then once my faith is in Jesus Christ, is my faith being lived out? It's so evident. No one should have to question whether or not you or I believe in Jesus. We should live out our faith before everyone so obviously that when they look at your life and mine, they would simply say, I know they're a Christian. It's obvious they're a Christian. It's obvious who Jesus Christ is to them. May it never be said about us when they look at our lives and they heard that you go to church, maybe where someone says, oh, really, you go to church? I didn't know you were a Christian. That would not be the good thing. Paul says, I'm thankful for the kind of Christian where no one doubts their faith where no one doubts what their faith is in, and it's in Jesus Christ. It's so obvious. It is the Christian who doesn't hide their faith, but makes it obvious that Paul says he's thankful to God for it. The next trait then, Paul says, he gives thanks for. So the first one was, he says, I'm thankful for the Christian who has an obvious faith. It's evident. And the second one is, he's going to say in verse 4, it's the Christian who has an obvious love. So obvious faith and obvious love. Look at verse 4 again. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, in the second part, and, now and means we've heard of your faith, but then there's a second thing he's heard about. The second thing is, I've heard about your love. Love for what? All the saints. Saints means the holy ones. Other Christians, other brothers and sisters in God's family. So Paul says, I've heard of your faith and 
the love that you have for the rest of God's family. They didn't just have an obvious faith. They had a love that was expressed to the degree it was so obvious. Again, remember, Paul's never met them, so he's writing this letter, and these are the two things he chose to focus on. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love for all the saints. I just find that fascinating. And he's never met them. And yet this is what he can focus on. That must mean that their love was so evident. Paul says, that's what I think about when I think about you Christians at Colossae. I thank God for that. Well, the word love here you've probably heard is agape. It's a very common word in the Greek New Testament. It means warm affections and regard for others. Well, this word love, again, can mean you have warm affections and regard to the degree that you start taking action. You show expressions of love. You don't just say you love them, you you show it. Here's what's interesting that the New Testament teaches us, though. We are to love the lost, lost meaning those outside of faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to make that clear, but I'm about to say something that I don't know if you've heard of before or not, but it's the truth. We are called as Christians to love those outside the family of God, to seek them to come into the family of God through faith in Christ. We're called to do that. But did you know that the New Testament puts a greater emphasis and a priority on Christians being more careful to show love to other Christians, more so than the lost outside the family of God? We are called to take more actions of love towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ than we are those outside of the family of God. Now, again, hear me clearly. That doesn't mean we don't love the lost and we don't help them. That's not what I'm saying. But compared to the two, the New Testament actually says, put your priority, though, check the box first on making sure you love those in the family of God. Why is that? Why are we called to love God's family first rather than the lost first. Well, it's interesting because there's actually a point of evangelism in that. Paul gives an example. I won't read it to you, but I'll say this quickly. It's in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is talking about the church there has an issue with eating meat that had been previously prayed over to a false god, an idol. So he says, listen, some Christians... Were coming, some people were coming to faith in Christ who used to be idolaters. They worshipped false Greek gods and Roman gods. Well, what would happen in their day is they would go to the meat market and they would buy meat that was cheap. The reason the meat was cheap and it was for sale is because it had previously been prayed over by the priest for the false god or goddess And it was used for their sacrifices, but this was leftover meat that they didn't use in the sacrifices. So they'd take it to the market and they'd sell it for cheaper. Well, some Christians had a question. They said, can we eat that meat or not? And Paul said, yeah, of course you can eat that meat. Some Christians said, well, I don't know that I feel right about eating that meat because it was prayed over by a false priest to their false god. It was offered to an idol. I don't know that I can eat that meat. Paul says, no, idols are not real. Eat the food. Food is just food. You know in your heart that an idol is not real. God is real. Eat the food. It's fine. But he said this. He said, however, if you're with a fellow Christian brother or sister beside you, and you two are invited over to the home of a lost person, 
and they go to serve you a meal and they tell you this meat I got for super cheap at the market because they offered it to the goddess Aphrodite and it was leftover meat. So I got it really cheap and I've cooked it for you guys to eat. Paul says, if your fellow Christian beside you has a very weak conscience, that really bothers them to eat that meat. They feel like they would be sinning to eat that meat. Paul says, here's the dilemma. Do you say to the lost person, who's your host, by the way, who's presenting you food? Do you say, I can't eat this. It would offend my brother or sister in Christ because you you said it was offered to an idol. Well, you're going to offend them. I mean, they're offering you food, right? We were taught that, right? Like, hey, just eat what they put in front of you. Don't tell them no. Or do you eat the food and not offend the host, who's a lost person, but you're going to offend your fellow Christian. You're going to cause their conscience to be hurt by eating that meat. Paul's answer, contrary to maybe what many would think, Paul said, choose to not offend your fellow Christian. Rather, if you had to, you don't want to offend the lost person, but if it means you offending a lost person and you not offending your brother or sister in Christ, support your brother and sister in Christ. That was Paul's point. And in fact, that would in turn hopefully help the lost person say to himself, wow, you people really love each other to the point that you're going to offend me to not offend your brother or sister in Christ. That's some kind of love. That was the point. Showing love to our brothers and sisters in Christ can be an act of evangelism to the lost. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What was the proof? He said, if you have love for one another. If you and I have love for each other in the Lord, Jesus said, that can be a proof to the lost world that you really belong to me. And then John says in 1 John 3, 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The obvious, he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's obvious. But he adds this, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He means brother or sister in the Lord. So John said, what is one of the proofs that a person can hold on to that says, I really am a child of God. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. John says, how do you know that? What's the proof? Well, I practice righteousness. I overcome sin. Great. The second proof, though, John says, had better be you show love to the family of God. He goes on and says, In verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So John was clear. We show the proof of our faith is in how much we love the family of God. John also says elsewhere that you can't uh, say you love God and hate your brother. The two don't go together. If you love God, you will love your brother or sister in the Lord. If you hate your brother or sister in the Lord, it kind of proves you really don't have love for God. Now think about that. It makes sense if we think about that. If we say we love Jesus and want the lost to come to faith in Jesus, but we never show real love to our church family, the family of God, how likely is it then we're going to win over the lost for Jesus? They could easily look at us and say, why would I believe in your Jesus And join your church when you people treat each other worse than I treat my own people. It doesn't make sense. They could say things like that. 
they could say, hey, you say that you have love for Jesus and he can change my life, but all you do is talk about other Christians in a bad way. So why would I really believe that that's real, that he would change my life? Because, again, love is sort of the evidence that a heart has been changed. Paul said these are the two things he gives thanks to God for. They had an obvious faith in Jesus. It was so obvious, so evident. Paul had gotten word about it. And then secondly, he said, I've heard about your love for the other family of God. Paul said these are the two big things he gave thanks to God for about them. How can love be obvious, though? Because it isn't love a feeling. So how, how could he say their love is obvious? Well, love is a feeling, right? We know that. That's where it starts. But real love will begin to take actions of love. It's one thing to say, I love my family, but if I never do anything, any actions towards them that show I love them, this, those are just words. So the words and the thoughts of love have to be backed up by actions of love. The early church did this. They loved each other, but they proved it with actions of love. For example, in the book of Acts, they shared food and clothes and shelter with one another. The early church was very poor. And people were coming to Christ, and because of that, they were suffering loss to some degree. Financial loss, property loss, job loss. They had a lot of physical material needs. And what we read in Acts is they banded together to help each other out. Acts 2.44 says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, meaning in the church. Acts 4 says, there was not a needy person among them. Again, this is in, in the church with each other. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This was proof of love. They didn't just say it. They said, I'll even sell some of my possessions and use the cash to help support you if that's what it takes. The Christians at Colossae had an obvious faith and an obvious love for other Christians. They were helping meet needs for each other, supporting one another, caring for one another. To the extent that Paul specifically said, I've heard about this. News has gotten back to me, and I just want to write to you and express how thankful I am for you because you're doing that. The question for us would be, do I have this kind of an obvious faith? Do I have this kind of love that is just so obvious, so evident? When people look at me, look at you, would they immediately be able to spot they must be a child of God they must be a believer in Jesus look how much they love those other people that also claim Christ as their savior what areas do you and I need to show more actions of love to the family of God would the law say about us it's obvious who we belong to and who we love what Paul was really saying here is he is thankful for the fact that the church here at Colossae, the Colossians had heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. But what had happened is the gospel began to bear fruit from their heart. It produced so much fruit in them, it was now evident and obvious outside of their own city even that they were believers in Jesus. Well, that leads me to this final section I want to look at. I want to run through what was it about their faith, though, that Paul points to? What kind of faith did they actually have? What was it specifically about their faith that Paul said he could point to and say, I'm thankful for these things. These are the reasons why they had such a strong faith and love. There's some principles here that Paul lays out that I think are helpful for us too. 
Let's look at this. So what was it about their faith? Well, the first thing was Paul pointed to, he said, you guys have a heavenly faith. That's what I'm going to call it, a heavenly faith. Look at verse 5. The word because. So he says, I thank God when I think about you because you have an obvious faith, you have an obvious love. But then he, he answers this question, why is it they had this obvious faith and love? Because. So here's the answer. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The Christians here at Colossae, yes, they believed in Jesus, but that isn't where it stopped. They had really, truly bought into this idea that there was hope waiting for them in heaven to come. They had a heavenly focused faith. They had heard the gospel and believed it, and then they realized through the message of the gospel, their hope was not of this earth. Their real hope was yet to come in heaven above. They lived their earthly lives with a heavenly focus. They lived as Christians on earth, but not as Christians of the earth. They were waiting to be in heaven. Life as a Christian on earth can get crazy, and we know this. We're not immune to problems of life. But when the problems come, what we're called to do is keep our focus on heaven, not here. Keep our focus on what's waiting for us yet to come, not on what's going on here on this earth. If all you do is live your life and focus on all the stuff of this earth, you're going to always be depressed, always be anxious, always have just these weird things going on that get you down over and over. Because this is not our home. This is not where we're meant to be. Paul could point to them and say, you guys, your faith is focused on what's yet to come. You had a heavenly focus, a hope on the things laid up for you. We live for eternity yet to come. Our hope is not in anything of this earth. It'll fade away. The church at Colossae, they had caught on to what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.4, that we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Notice Peter said it is kept for you in heaven. That's what they bought into. Yes, salvation from their sins, but they went further and said, but we know what that really means. That means that we are not living for the stuff of this earth. No matter what happens here, we have an inheritance awaiting for us up there. And nothing or no one can take it away. It'll never go away. The gospel message is not just that you can be saved from sins. It's that you can have real hope of eternal life with God in heaven. The gospel says, don't put your hope in the stuff of earthly life. Put your hope in what God will give you when you get to heaven. Do you have a heavenly focused faith like the Colossians had? A faith that keeps its hope on what God has in store for you yet to come? That is the kind of faith that Paul could point to and say, this is the reason you guys have such a strong, evident faith. Because you're not focused on the here, you're focused on the there yet to come. The second thing he pointed to about their faith, I'm going to call it they had a fruitful faith. In verse 6, he says, which has come to you, the which has come to you is the gospel. So the gospel came to them, they heard it and they believed it. So then he picks up and says, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, and this is the phrase, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul pointed to a specific thing here. He said, you guys heard the gospel, believe the gospel, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's what it did. It started producing fruit from your spirit. It was having an effect on them, and that effect was causing them to grow and be more like Jesus and live like Jesus and love like Jesus. Paul said it was evident to him that their faith was bearing fruit. 
They had a fruitful faith. What does it mean to have a fruitful faith? It means that a person is truly being changed from the inside out. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, a person must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. He literally used a phrase there for a person had to be rebirthed all over again. That's what caused Nicodemus confusion if you read that. He said, how can a grown man go back into his mother's womb and be birthed all over again? And Jesus said, you're you're missing the point, Nicodemus. It's this idea that from the inside out, God must make you a new person, a new creature. If that's true about someone, then what's going to happen is they're going to start living more like Jesus did, saying more of what Jesus did, thinking like Jesus, being like Jesus, loving like Jesus. You, your identity becomes Jesus. You're no longer yourself. You identify with Jesus Christ. Paul said this is who they were becoming, a faith that was bearing fruit. And it was so obvious and so evident. They were growing up, so to speak, to be more like Jesus. They had heard the gospel. They understood it. Paul said the grace of God and truth. They weren't just giving lip service to Jesus, saying, oh, I believe in Jesus. They were living it out. And it was obvious. It was evident. Again, the question for us, do we have a fruitful faith? Do I have a faith that is obviously, evidently growing and advancing? Are you stronger in faith this year than last year? Are you maturing to be more like Jesus this year versus last year, for example? I do not believe faith cannot be moving. Maybe this is my opinion. I couldn't find a verse for this, but I believe this strongly. I do not believe that faith in Jesus Christ cannot be stagnant. It must be moving. I think it will move. Here's what I mean. You are either purposely and intentionally advancing towards more godliness, more holiness, a stronger faith. Or you could say to yourself, I'm coasting. You're not really coasting. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. Only one of the two. You're not just going to stay stuck and stagnant. You're either moving towards more maturity in Christ or less maturity in Christ. These Christians, Paul says, I'm thankful for you because your faith is evidently, obviously growing. It's advancing. It's bearing fruit. Only a fruitful faith will cause us to live out our faith so publicly, so evident. It's just obvious to everyone else, like Paul said about them. The third thing he points to about their faith, I'm going to call it they had a spirit-filled faith. In verse 7, he says, Just as you learned it, meaning the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So that's how we know Paul had never met them. They had met Epaphras. Epaphras was sort of an apprentice of Paul. And Paul sent him out to share the gospel there. And they believed the gospel through this man, Epaphras. But again, Paul had never met them. But he'd heard about it so much. And he says, so listen, you guys heard the gospel from Epaphras. You believe the gospel. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. But look at verse 8. He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. That's the idea. Their love in the Spirit. These people had a Holy Spirit-filled faith. Their love for other Christians was a result of the Holy Spirit within them, causing them to carry out Spirit-filled actions of love. We all have the Holy Spirit after faith in Christ. But we are commanded, though, to be filled by the Spirit. I won't read it to you, but you could look at Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says that, be filled with the Spirit of God. And it's a command verb. So when you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit. He's just kind of in you. He's caused you to be rebirthed, reborn from the inside out. He's in there working in your heart. 
causing you to live and act and be more like Jesus, convicting you of sin. But the command we're to do is to sort of give up more parts of our lives, more areas of ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. That's the be filled with the Spirit part. So we, we follow Christ in all areas of our lives. And as we do, as we overcome more sin and follow the leading of the Spirit, the Spirit just sort of takes, takes over more in these areas of our lives and we live in accordance with the Spirit. But we cannot harbor unconfessed, unrepented sin, the spirits at war with sin. So we must constantly be battling sin and yielding more to the Spirit. We do, we do that when we simply focus on Jesus. We read the Bible to know what we're to think and to do and to be. And then we obey it. And when we obey it and we strive to do it, that's when we're following the Spirit. And what will happen is as we step out in obedience to what Scripture says to do, the Spirit will sort of work within us to activate more of that and propel you along even greater. As we grow, we will produce what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the first thing he pointed to. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Verse 24, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. You've put to death your old self, your sinful ways. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step or follow along with the Spirit. The Colossians were doing that. Paul says, I, I can tell you have a Spirit-filled faith. You're following the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They had been just showing this love and this joy and this peace. They were overcoming sins and living out the fruit of the Spirit. Paul here points to the idea of love, though. They were loving others through the work of the Spirit in their hearts. He said, we've, we've heard about your love in the Spirit. The question is, do we have a faith that is cold and not growing? Is our faith dry? Or do we have a growing faith focused on heaven? Do we have a faith producing more fruit and a faith that shows we're following the leading of the Spirit because we're producing the fruit of the Spirit? I'm having more love, more peace, more joy, more kindness, more goodness. The main proof of this will be an obvious love. Love for God, love for God's people. Am I the kind of Christian then the Apostle Paul would give thanks to God for? And I'd ask that as I'm closing this out this morning. To ask yourself, if Paul were here, he could sit down with you over dinner, and you could ask Paul, Paul, can you kind of evaluate me? Am I doing what I should be doing? Am I, am I doing the right things here? Am I the kind of Christian, Paul, that when you think about me, you would give thanks to God for me? Well, he answered this, do we have an obvious faith? It's evident. Do we have an obvious love for God's family? That's evident. Do we have the kind of faith that's heavenly focused? not bound to the things of this earth? Do we have a kind of faith that is fruitful? It's not stagnant, it's not dry, it's producing more for Jesus. And a faith that is following the Holy Spirit, it's just showing more love and more peace, the fruit of the Spirit. Heavenly focused, fruit producing, spirit filled faith will be obvious to others. And Paul says, I've heard about it and I'm thankful for that. Paul said, this is the kind of Christian he gives thanks to God for because it's proof that the gospel of Jesus is really working in their hearts. And I want to end with where he started. He said he had heard about their faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it all starts. They had their faith in the right person, Jesus Christ. Paul would say, 
First of all, you have to make sure you really are saved from your sins. You're born again. How does a person do that? You place your faith, all your trust, that Jesus died for you, paid the payment for your sins, but he rose again, showing that anyone that believes in him can have eternal life too. Paul says, once your faith is in the right thing, Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit begins to work from within you. And you'll do this stuff. And then you'll be the kind of person he says, I give thanks to God for you. I pray that you know Jesus this morning. As I close out, and Bruce and then will come, that'll be kind of my question to us as we'll have a final prayer. I ask that you think about, ask God this morning before you leave to reveal to you maybe areas where you're not quite showing your faith. You need to be more evident. Maybe you're not showing as much love. You need to be more evident about that. Would you join me in standing? I'll pray, Bruce, and then we'll come. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you died for our sins. Thankful that you don't just forgive us of our sins, but you offer us and say that we will become a new person, a new creature. A creature that still has a sinful body to deal with until heaven, but nonetheless we are being renewed and made new from the inside out. And I ask, Lord, that you would convict all of us, myself included, to be mindful of the areas in our lives where perhaps we should show more evident faith and more obvious love. Maybe we need to put our focus more on heaven rather than the things of this earth. Maybe we need to be focused on growing in our faith rather than just ignoring it and thinking it's automatic. Maybe we need to really focus on overcoming sin and giving up more control of our lives to the Holy Spirit's leading. I pray that you will help each of us think on these things this morning. In Jesus' name.